the history of timekeeping has always been fascinating to us, you know, from the Egyptians, the obelisk dividing the day into two 12-hour periods, the the candle clock in China and Japan. I mean, these are things that I was really thinking about a lot. And every single day in our Instagram story, there's a 15-second video of the date being drawn. That's it. And every month we bring in a different artist who creates the calendar to give you an opportunity to just slow down and meditate for 15 seconds on the day of the month marked by a human being with their hand. Hey everybody, I'm your host Stephen Pulverant and this is Hodinky Radio. This week we're going to dedicate the entire show to a conversation between me and two of my friends, Spencer Bailey and Andrew Zuckerman, who are the co-founders of The Slowdown. The Slowdown's a new kind of media company that launched back in May 2019. They do podcasts, they do a weekly newsletter, and their idea is to create what they call short-form content with a long view. These are two guys who are deeply obsessed with time, but with slightly different perspectives that come from Spencer's background as a journalist and Andrew's background as a photographer and director. They think really smartly about how we relate to time in the modern era, and we definitely go deep on that topic in this episode. Most of what we discuss is pretty big picture, though there's some watch nerd chat at the end, so be sure to stick around for that if that's what you're looking for. These are two guys I always enjoy talking to and from whom I always learn something. After recording this, I actually had to sit down and take some time to gather myself, jot down some thoughts, and think a little bit more about how our conversation relates to my own life. Hopefully, it'll have the same impact on some of you. So without further ado, let's do this. This week's episode is presented by Oris and the brand's newest in-house movement, the Caliber 400. Stay tuned later in the show to learn more, and be sure to visit oris.ch for all the details. Hey Spencer and Andrew, good to uh, good to have you guys on the show. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Good to catch up. It's been it's been quite a while since I've talked to either of you. I think <laughs> pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> You've both had some some pretty significant uh, kind of like I would say moments like with a capital M since since the pandemic started. I mean, Spencer, your uh, your book just came out, right? Yeah, uh, it actually comes out in a week. I don't know when this is airing, but um, <laughs> it comes out on right. October twenty eighth. And uh, that was sort of a labor of love that I did mostly in early mornings and weekends uh, while building the slowdown with Andrew. I, I have a copy of the book uh, and I love it. Um, I think, you know, we'll link it up in the show notes so people can can check it out. Um, but I, I pre-ordered it pretty, pretty early on. Uh, and it's, it's beautiful, but it's it's also kind of a heavy topic. And I think it's it's hearing you say that you worked on it, you know, kind of like early mornings, nights and weekends. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty heavy stuff to be doing first thing. In yeah. The morning yeah. Or, I mean, wait, right waking, waking up in the morning. Um, and, and I guess we should clarify the books about memorials and memorial making and waking up in the morning at like five to write about, um, you know, how we memorialize uh, tragedy, trauma, mass genocide, uh, the Holocaust, slavery, lynching. I mean, it was, it was pretty heavy. Um, and I turned the copy in 
the first week of March, right before the pandemic. Um, so actually, it was interesting to like close this uh, book project about memorials and at the same time be running a company with Andrew called The Slowdown as we all went into a global slowdown. It was just, just this very strange confluence of things happening all at once uh, that seemed somehow um, prescient or uh, even if it was never our intention. Like Andrew and I always kind of expected we'd end up in a big slowdown, by the way. Um, but we just oh, we weren't really sure how or what sort of form that would take. Um, but we knew it was happening and we knew there was there's this big sort of disparate movement of people all over the world who are calling, have been calling for some sort of slowdown um, or, or looking for a slowdown. Um, I just think none of us really expected it would be a global pandemic. Yeah, I mean, we, it definitely wasn't a pandemic we were thinking about, but I think as early as 2016, 2017, we were really starting to recognize how speed was being weaponized in media, in culture, um, very specifically out of Silicon Valley, um, across the board. Um, and so we, we'd been speaking a lot about this, and we were kind of wondering how to grow a lotus out of that mud um, and turn the force of that opposition as a strength for us and a, as a strength for culture. So we really, it began with, like many things, in disappointment. <laughs> um, and yeah. as, as our good friend Simon Critchley talks about, uh, you know, philosophy starts in disappointment, not wonder. Um, and and we, we just sort of were sharing a... Um, uh, a perspective that 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 we knew was worth mining mm -hmm. and um and yeah we we week by week as we were building the company and as we were learning more and more about um like-minded uh people who are curious in, in in similar things we realized that as spencer was saying that it's really disconnected and unlinked from each other all of these perspectives and what we wanted to do was figure out a, a storytelling engine that could bring these ideas together um, across culture and nature and the future mm -hmm. to explore time and how, in a way, agency can be restored through your perspective on time. Mm -hmm. I would add, to, yeah, I would add, too, that, um, you know, we, we all become so obsessed with speed in our culture and one of the things that connects to that is this notion of duration of time. And, yeah. you know, we describe what we do as short form content with a long view, but what's really interesting is like we make an hour long podcast. Like most people are like, that's not right. They're like, that's not short. <laughs> but, yeah. but the reality is, is like an hour in the grand scheme of life is incredibly short. And what you can do in an hour, what you can learn in an hour, um, the fact is, like, an hour-long podcast is actually short-form content. We've just all been told that short-form content is a TikTok video. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's super interesting. And I think it's it's interesting that, you know, media more broadly has been kind of veering toward the polls, right? Like, it's, it's like a TikTok video, an Instagram post, or it's a 10-episode Netflix series. You know, it's, it's one extreme or the mm -hmm. other. And I think... Mm -hmm. that sort of like things you can do in like 30 to 90 minutes to me is, is really fascinating just as like a media professional. Um, Cause I agree with you, Spencer, like what you can do in an hour is kind of miraculous and like 
trying to accomplish as much as, you know, a 10-hour thing in an hour, but making it feel like it goes by in, you know, 60 seconds is is kind of an interesting, interesting challenge. Um, but I think thinking about kind of the the timeline, if we're going to expand the timeline a little bit here of of the slowdown itself, you guys launched it almost exactly a year before the actual slowdown happened, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. So you you kind of had this this uh, sort of prescience about the situation going back a couple of years. You get the slowdown off the ground. You have kind of a year, you know, 10 months to explore these themes, and then the slowdown happens. And I wonder, in what ways do you think that that 10 to 12 months of producing things under the slowdown banner and what you learned in that time kind of maybe helped prepare the two of you for for what hit us in in March? You know, it's funny. We spent about a year before we put anything out into the world really just looking at this idea super deeply, which is something that I think rarely happens when you start a company. Um, before we'd, we'd put anything out in the world, we kind of had a name early on, but but we did a whole lot of thinking and reading and talking and looking um, before we decided to do anything, uh, execute on any of it. We really wanted to kind of understand the cracks before we tried to make them visible. And um, and then w- the way we really got started, we, we didn't go out for traditional funding because we didn't want to... Um, kind of uh, establish who we were, what we were doing, and how we were going to do it uh, theoretically and and ask someone to support that without really knowing what that was going to look like. So we decided to, to be very modest about it and um, start with humble platforms that we could control where it was actually about what we wanted to say and, 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 and how we wanted to say it. We knew that we wanted to create context, you know, this idea of um, kind of cognitive empathy, like not not sharing how people feel, but understanding their worldview, like perspective taking. And so it was important for us to just start with the idea of conversation. I mean, I don't know if you remember at the time, you know, it was all the TED talk and presentation. You were just being spoken at all the time. And it was this like... Uh, late stage information age kind of barrage of information. And we just wanted to have conversations and allow people to arrive at things through conversation. Um, and so we started the podcast Time Sensitive. And, uh, and through that, I think, um, really started to learn the medium. Um, and then by the time the pandemic started, uh, I mean, Spencer, you and I were like, the hell is going on? Um, I was sick. We were wondering if you were sick. We were just sort of in a haze. And then we said, well, we got to do something this moment. If we don't know what's going on, that means no one does. And we need to start to have conversations about what this looks like from a distance. Um, and so we started a podcast, what, March? The end, the end of March is when we, um, I think went live with it, but we, we, we started recording basically within a week or two of, of the pandemic, um, interviewing, you know, our, our first episode was Bill McKibben, the, the environmentalist and author. Um, 
But it's, I actually think it's interesting, too, to go back um, to sort of the impetus for the slowdown to talk about how, um, how the pandemic kind of hit us uh, as, a, as a sort of entity. And, you know, Andrew and I actually met when I was the editor-in-chief of Surface, and Andrew had curated an exhibition at a small gallery in Chelsea um, is a year-long exhibition, and I would probably butcher it if I tried to describe the show. <laughs> um, it was about time, actually. But, but I mean, yeah, I mean, about, it really it, it, was, it was about actually the, the the I would say the slowdown has four major sort of themes we're exploring: it's culture, nature, the future, and time. And is this is this the Chamber sh- show that you're talking about? Yeah, it was a Chamber Gallery. Yeah. It's called Human Human Nature, and the exhibition really looked at the elements of life and the tools we and the tools we use and uh so it had everything from a paleolithic hand axe to space gloves (laughs) um and and really beautifully designed immaculately made objects and i was just like so taken with the show because having run a design magazine i was kind of frankly just annoyed with how insidery so much of the design world is yeah. and i felt like here's a here's a show that speaks about the universality of design here's a show that speaks about you know everything from like lascaux to present like talking about the cave paintings <laughs> as a you know in a way all the way to like where we are now and uh Andrew and I didn't actually know each other before that. We were we were introduced through Juan, who ran the gallery, and um, Juan connected us because uh, Andrew wanted somebody to to talk to him for this book they were making, um, rather than write like a curatorial statement to set up an interview. And that interview, I think, became like not only is our first conversation on paper, like as, a, as, a, as an interview, but that conversation I think really was the starting point for what became a friendship and ultimately turned into the slowdown. Uh, and I think that the issues and the things that we were talking about then have now become all the more important and relevant for what we're doing right now. So it's sort of like it started with a conversation, this company started with a conversation maybe five years ago. Yeah, it's it's funny that you you brought up the show because it was something that was was on, on my list of things I wanted to to chat mm-hmm. with you guys about because I remember, you know, for people who may not know, you and I were were colleagues at Surface at the time, mm-hmm. um, and I remember running over on my lunch break one day to like quickly take a look, and I realized very quickly that like okay, this was a thing I I wasn't going to do in forty five minutes like on my on my lunch break like I needed. <laughs> I needed to go back another time and like really soak it up. Um, and it, it does feel to me like so much of the, I hate the word DNA, but I, you know, it's a, it's a hazy morning here. I can't, can't come up with a better word there, but so much of the DNA of, of the slowdown seems really rooted in, in that show and rooted in this idea of taking seriously, you know, the long arc of time and the way that material culture is a part of that in a way that our ideas kind of carry forward from from one moment to the next. Well, there, there were definitely ideas in that um, in those four exhibitions we did that year that 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 um, that were nascent really at the time it was exploring it and and the slowdown's given us both an opportunity to delve deeper, deeper both into like indigenous 
culture and also um, just the idea of a connected experience throughout time. I mean, you know, I, th I think what we were going through at that moment was, you know, the rise in uh, just a ferocious uh, scale in Silicon mm -hmm. Valley and uh, with no recognition of how we got here and where we're going. It was move fast and break things. And it was very much about um, it doesn't matter what happened before. New, new, new. That's all that matters. And um, at the same time, it was happening in design as if, you know, things hadn't occurred before that. The design conversation, as they say, which I couldn't understand at the time. There were people that were talking to me about the show that didn't like the show yeah. when it came out that said, this isn't a part of the design conversation. I was like, I don't even know what that yeah. is. Uh, we were... Yeah, and I, and, I felt, and I felt like the second I saw that show, I was like, this to me is what the design conversation should be. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I was I was interested in the human relationship to nature, right? As we all are, and and now more than ever. And so, in many ways, that that show I would say is how how Spencer and I found common ground on on how we were seeing things. Mm -hmm. That 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 sort of uh, it made it visible for us. And and um, yeah, we both and it was a really fun experience. I think. I think we both coming out of that realized we happened to be um, in addition to having like a, a deep appreciation for design and craft um, also really appreciating um, thoughtfully crafted and designed media. Um, mm -hmm. And I think our, we had mutual frustrations about the state of media. We felt that there had to be, a healthier, like more sustainable way that there could be a platform for bringing, you know, art, economics, philosophy, design, architecture, politics, science, technology, all these things together in a deep, comprehensive way that was still approachable, that still could be digestible and didn't feel like some, I don't know, like the, I think there's a fine line between being like mass and being totally, totally niche. And yeah. And I think we wanted to find this sort of common ground between intellectual depth and rigor, um, but also something that could... Not be too smarty pants. <laughs> we hate that. I mean, that's the other thing. It's just the simplistic way of looking at things. And, 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 and not really about taste or style, but about ideas mm -hmm. and, and, and perspective. I mean, Stephen, I'll join you in the struggle to find the, the right word at this point in the morning. But, <laughs> you know, this idea of interdisciplinary, like, you know, we really, uh, I, we don't like domains. We don't like labels in any way. The most interesting people I know are able to function through um, a way of looking at the world in any sector that they're in. So I find economists to be some of the great um, philosophers and artists of our time, just the same as architects and mm -hmm. and traditional fine artists. So I, we really wanted to cross those kind of um, um, barriers. You know, how can you put um, uh, multiple people with different disciplines in the same conversation in a real way, not in a kind of mm -hmm. uh, theoretical way? And also, how, how we can understand people who have varied interests. I mean, one of our first episodes you know, was an actor who... Of time sensitive. On time sensitive, who you know as an actor, but 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 the episode was all about running. Um, so oftentimes we're trying to look at the whole person mm -hmm. um, and, and understand who they are through their perspective on time. Um, 
and that that was kind of where it started but at a distance obviously is very different um I think we were yeah. talking about that a little bit. So, sorry to the listeners who are getting confused. We have two podcasts. <laughs> One is time sensitive. The other is at distance. And at, and Andrew and I are both the co-host of, of, of each of, of both those podcasts. See, this, this is what I um, love about having other media professionals and specifically podcasters on the show is like when I do a terrible job setting up the kind of framework for this, you guys jump in and fix it for me. I love it. Um, <laughs> but I, I think, you know, you, you, you said finding common threads, Andrew, and I think that's, that's something that I personally really like about time sensitive. Uh, and, you know, from that first episode that you referenced, the one with uh, Peter Sarsgaard, um, which as a runner myself, I, I really loved, um, but also just like everyone from, I don't know, like Liz Diller to David Duchovny, right? Like these are people that you know for the stuff they make, right? Like, you know, Diller because of her buildings, you know, Peter Sarsgaard or David Duchovny because of their movies and TV shows. And while those things get talked about sometimes on the show, they're not like the show is not a show about stuff, right? It's, it's a show about these like human threads that connect everybody and, you know, having a very blunt conversation with Liz Diller about kind of like the specter of the Holocaust hanging over her family is not at all what most people tune in to hear Liz Diller talk about. But at the same time, when you hear it, it's it's so human that you, you kind of can't help but relate to it in a certain way. Uh, and I think those kinds of conversations are, are really, really powerful uh, and kind of transcend the, the more particular labels, whatever those those happen to be. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we we had um, we had the novelist Hari Kunzru on at a distance recently, and he has a, a podcast called Into the Zone that came out recently, basically about the idea that nothing is black and white; that there are these sort of amorphous borders between things, and we shouldn't label things so so you know clearly as this or that. And I think if you look back at what what we really wanted to come out of that come out of making the slowdown is this idea of nuance and I think nuance is like you know one of the metaphors we were using early on is talking about food like thinking about uh, the the content you consume similar to like a meal right and if you go back to the slow food movement I think there's this idea that like understanding where your food comes from, how your food is made, enjoying the food that you consume. Like there's a lot of nuance in, in food and in understanding uh, what it is you're eating. And I think the same can be said of media. Like you can definitely apply this idea to media that we need media that allows people to slow down, to turn inward, to think about things on a deeper level. Like there, you know, if you're taking the time to consume something, that thing better come from like a place of good integrity. It better come from a place that's like thoughtfully done that, that, that there was like solid reporting. It's been fact checked. There's a level of quality that you are expecting. Um, yeah. I mean, we like, we like well-crafted things overall and, you know, less, but better is a big part of how we see things. And, and uh, we knew we wanted to craft everything to a very high level and also focus on that. But but connected to that is also how we made these things. I mean, we took making the podcast pretty seriously in terms of, you know, the recording and, and, and putting thoughts into somebody's ears needs to come beautifully cooked, you know. So um, 
we definitely spent a lot of time on the quality of the work we were putting out, both in visually with design and sonically with, with the podcast. Yeah, I mean, with time sensitive especially, we, we wanted it to be a multi-sensory experience. And we can definitely get into talking about the senses on this podcast because that's part of what we do. Um, but, you know, big it, part of it. Yeah, it, it was really thinking about um, was really thinking about how do you make a podcast visual um, in addition to being impeccably high quality in terms of audio. And so we have this um, beautiful studio set up at our um, studio in Chelsea um, where we record time sensitive. And then we created this digital experience that has hyperlinks, pictures, uh, condensed and edited transcript, so you can get this sort of full picture. And actually, we've really seen that the website has worked. More than half of our listeners to Time Sensitive are listening through the timesensitive.fm website. So it's become clear to us that people are turning to it, not, um, not just because it looks nice, but because it really adds another layer of experience. It adds something more. And some people don't even like to listen. I mean, we have a, a number of friends who... Who just read it? Yeah, um, it's really they fascinating. So <laughs> they, they don't do podcasts. That is super. <laughs> yeah, they just don't do. Pe- and we had well, we they- had a we had a um, guy in the UK very early on after we launched write to us on Twitter and thank us. Um, he's he's deaf. He actually can't listen to podcasts, and so he was you know thanking us for the quality content and for giving him the opportunity to listen. Literally, and yeah. I, th- I think forever we've both been fascinated by the by the idea of multiple points of entry. Um, when I was making uh, projects years ago, I used to make a number of books, and and they would always have film components, online components, exhibitions. Where when I was going to make the work, I thought of it like data collection. Like let's just go gather all the data <laughs> and then figure all the ways that we're going to actually. That was before that was sort of a nefarious term. Um, collect all the data for the project and then go and figure out all the different ways that people could consume it. Some people would see the book and not even know there was a film, you know, so we knew when building our own platforms that we wanted multiple points of entry. We're building a house with many doors, but what's important is what you're getting once you're inside. Um, so we just want to find ways for people to enter that space. Yeah, It's interesting to hear you talk about the the craft of this and, and, you know, Spencer, I know you, you, have you know a pretty traditional journalism background in a lot of ways and you mentioned you know fact checking and and all of this stuff but when you're prepping for a show and I say, say this with personal experience you know if it's a straight interview show and it's you know Terry Gross style and it's question answer question answer that's that's pretty straightforward and easy to do in a lot of ways I mean it's not easy but it's it's straightforward in some ways but the sorts of conversations you're having you can only sort of prep so much and only sort of control so much and I wonder is is that something that you guys embrace that that bit of serendipity or is it something you try to control for how, how do you guys think about that heading into a recording you know in the days and hours leading up to sitting down with somebody in the studio I mean I think Andrew and I both do it in our own way and a little differently, but also quite similarly. Um, We're both very rigorous about the research we do. Um, I think we both believe in the fact that uh, if you're going to have somebody on your show, you should read everything that has been reported and written, at least in, in recent years, on them and really understand the questions that have not been asked. 
and really find the layers of their story that connect to time in a way that's deep. I can give a good example. Um, Michael Kimmelman, the architecture critic of the New York Times, who came on the podcast, he doesn't get interviewed a lot, but he has written an incredible amount. He was the art critic at the Times prior to his current role. He's been there since, um, you know, he's been on staff since I believe 1990. And um, I tracked down his first story he ever published in the New York Times. And the, and the lead sentence of that story was, time has generally been a good editor. <laughs> and it like it took me, you know, that came out of 15 plus hours of research and reading. And when I came across that sentence, I was like, shit, like this is going to be this is how I'm opening the interview. And those are those moments know? as a journalist where you're just like, yeah, yes. Oh, and he'd for and he'd forgotten about it. He didn't even know that that was the first story he'd written. And it was about some classical music performance at a church in downtown New York in 1987. I mean, it, that's wild. <laughs> so, yeah. And it's like that kind of that's sort of the rigor. I mean, is like you, you just have to keep digging and digging and digging and digging until you find those things. And out of that. Um, and it's often what's on the periphery that's the most interesting, I think. Mm. Um, and I think that's sort of what Andrew was trying to say earlier. I love this um, Chinese notion of qi, and I got into it a little bit with Ivy Ross from Google when she came on the podcast. But it's this sort of idea that like energy is embedded in everything. And I think that's really true of an interview. That, that the especially an in-person interview, the kind of intimate interviews we're doing in the studio, like if we have weird energy with the guest, it's going to come through. If we have great energy with the guest, it's going to come through. And that energy all stems out of the first question. And that first question stems out of hours and hours and hours and hours of research. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, Spencer and I do at a distance together. So that process is really you know, we we're constantly sending each other things and uh, that, that we're reading. We have our eyes wide open um, all the time. And and then we'll do collective research uh, for at a distance. So we'll actually do the research together. We may have read things before, but we'll do that as a joint session. Time sensitive. It's sort of eat what you kill. We get our own guests and we research in our own ways um, for those episodes. And we have really different ways of interviewing people. As you said, Spencer's coming from a journalistic background. So his... Um, his approach is different than mine. Um, and, and I think overall what we get to is a kind of very balanced, um, binary kind of show. It goes one way and then it goes another. Our guests are different. Our interests are slightly different. Um, but we both do tons and tons of research. I mean, for me, it's a very, it feels quite selfish. It's not really a job. It's like, I, I look deeply into something I'm interested in and then I get to sit with that person. And, um, you know, we Spencer's interviewing history has always been or, or often been in that context of um, of publications that are coming out of uh, more journalistic. My interview background was was very different in that I was making books that were filled with interviews. Um, and, you know, I, I the first interview I ever gave in my life was with Michael Parkinson, the great um, Parky, the great English interviewer, the sort of Charlie Rose or. Well, I guess he has a better 
better history than Charlie Rose, but the Charlie Rose of England. Um, and he, I don't think he ever got in any trouble like Charlie Rose did. But anyhow, I, you know, I was quite nervous, and and I, I had been just mainly a director and a photographer at that point, and I, I was doing this book called The Wisdom, and I, I sat down with him, the first interview, and and I said, you know, I just want you to know, I've never interviewed anyone before. And uh, so I might not be very good, and uh, and you're like the greatest interview ever. So, um, bear with me. And he said, No, you know, we just need to actually be interested in each other, and then we'll have a good time. And I've never lost sight of that. That you know, I, I for me the rule is I just won't do an interview unless I'm truly interested in that person. And if I'm truly interested, the research I'm just gonna sniff out what matters to me. And my way of doing it, which I think is 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 a little bit weird, but I, I kind of imagine what they'll answer. So I'll pretty much write the episode out, imagining what their responses mm. will be so I can get to the next question. So I'll often like write a fantasy imaginary script and back into the questions that way so I can guide where it's going. So it might seem like it's very natural, but it's been, for both of us, it's very preconceived um and pre-thought out we because we don't really we hardly edit anything mm-hmm. um it's a tight hour what is in what is it. interesting though is like i feel like my approach is quite the opposite in some ways where i'm like i definitely come with like an idea of like i'm gonna ask these questions very similar to andrew and sort of anticipating a structure to the conversation but at the same time like sometimes i just it goes so haywire like the other oh, like totally. i just I, I you know i just did an interview the other week where it was like i yeah our sound engineer afterwards was like how did you <laughs> balance all of that <laughs> like it went you know went all over the place and and you know and i think i think that um you know some of that is the journalist in me for sure like the i you know it brings me back to like when i was at columbia journalism school doing some of that shoe leather reporting and you just never know what's going to happen on the street um i i kind of love that energy and attitude and you know I, I i think too about you know what i was saying earlier about like how how you respond to people and and it it comes out of a deep deep curiosity um you know, and 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 I think a deep respect for the person you're sitting with, and you show that res- you show that respect by doing your homework. I I I, I think about um, actually the first cover story I ever did, uh, which was for Surface, and it was Zaha Hadid, and that that probably is like one of my f- most memorable interviews of all time. And um, I remember we were we were in the Mercer Hotel, and I walked in. To interview her, I remember going to the front desk like uh, I'm. I'm here to see Saha Hadid, <laughs> and they're like, "Yeah, come over to the. Uh, yeah, she's expecting you." And they took me to this corner table, and I sat down, and and she's sitting at the table next to me, eating a salad with these blue driving gloves on. As these two assistants are furiously typing, and you know, at the time I was young, I was uh, 27, and being sized up by Zaha Hadid, like literally staring at me as I sat in this corner booth and I'm mildly terrified for sure. Um, after like 10 minutes, she finally comes and sits down and, you know, sends a couple texts on her phone, listens to a voicemail, whatever, finally looks at me and says, I'm ready. And, you know, I could have totally botched it, but instead I had front loaded this question showing that I'd done my homework that, that, you know, it was, a, it was a question about her Vitra fire station, which at the time was celebrating 20 years and kind of this 
very pivotal moment in her career and I'd really dug into that. And so for basically the next hour and a half, it was just like this open, free ranging interview talking about everything from like Gunnar Burkitts in Oklahoma to her first project in America and Cincinnati. And after the interview, she removed her right glove to shake my hand. And it was this sort of like, you know, I showed her the respect. And in the end, she showed me the respect back. And there was this really interesting, not just dialogue that happened during the conversation, but the sort of, um, you know, human interaction that took place. And I hope that with what we're doing with Time Sensitive, that kind of intimacy is coming through in the audio. Um, because I think that that is what makes a podcast, especially an interview podcast, really special when, when as a listener, you feel like you're sitting in on a conversation that uh, is vulnerable and open and that you probably shouldn't even be sitting on, in on, but, but you have the pleasure of uh, getting to experience. This week's episode is presented by Oris. The foundation of any good watch is a great movement. And with its latest in-house creation, the Caliber 400, Oris is setting a new standard for everyday timekeeping. The team at Oris asked themselves, how can we produce the best possible watch at the best possible price? And the Caliber 400 is a big part of their answer. The brand new movement was conceived to stand up to the demands of modern watch wearers, providing reliable service for a decade, literally, in addition to coming with a full 10-year warranty to match the suggested 10-year service interval, the Caliber 400 employs a number of technological innovations to make it an ideal movement to power a contemporary, go-anywhere, do-anything watch. The Caliber 400 is powered by two barrels, giving it a full 5-day or 120-hour power reserve. More than 30 of the movement's components are anti-magnetic, including the silicon escape wheel and silicon anchor, so the Caliber will perform at peak accuracy under any conditions. In fact, during testing, the Caliber 400 was exposed to more than 11 times the amount of magnetism required to be certified anti-magnetic, all while showing only one-third of the allowable deviation in timekeeping. So yeah, it's seriously anti-magnetic. Finally, Oris even rethought one of the most essential elements of an automatic watch, the winding rotor system, introducing a new bearing system to make it more efficient and durable at the same time. The Caliber 400 is a class-leading in-house movement that combines innovative design with impressive engineering, and it'll be making its way into some new Oris watches very soon. For more about Oris and the Caliber 400 movement, visit oris.ch. All right, let's get back to the show. I wonder, without calling out anyone, you know, in, in particular, have, have you either of you ever sat down for an interview for Time Sensitive or had a conversation for it at a distance where like that energy either didn't click or it clicked in kind of like a, a weird way and it went off the rails either in like a totally crazy but beautiful direction or went like totally just full on off the rails and you were like, okay, maybe this is, is too much. Maybe it's too vulnerable. Maybe it's it's not enough or whatever. And you kind of are, are sitting in those chairs and thinking to yourself like, shit, how do we how do we either make something of this or how do we like kind of get, get ourselves out of this, out of this hole? I mean, you know, th there's, th we won't talk about the ones that actually don't, you know, where, where you walk away, like kind of yeah. offended, like what totally. the fuck was that? Um, but, but, but what I will say about that is early on, um, I, I really wanted to do a, an interview with, with a good friend of ours, Bjarke Engels, the architect. And, you know, I, I knew 
so much about Bjarke um, that I wanted to talk about, and I designed this whole interview, and we sat down and did it, and it just kind of like didn't land. It didn't work. There was too much sort of we know each other. There was too much comfort, and it I, when I listened to it, I, I said, "This isn't for an audience. This is this doesn't work." And uh, and he came right back and did mm -hmm. it again two days later, and we just. So, so the idea of recognizing failure in an interview, I think, is really, really important. And the generosity and willingness of a guest to come back and try again yeah. with you uh, is, is, is amazing. I mean, because it wound up being one of, you know, a, a very important episode for us early on. But um, I don't know if it would have been if we hadn't done it again. Um, so, so I think that that's the interesting part of that uh, sort of if we can respond to that in some way like otherwise it's just like yeah some guests suck and you just kind of walk away and you go that that yeah. didn't yeah. work as well i, as I will I say i think you know for everyone we've had on time sensitive and maybe it's partially because it's an in-person interview but and also because we heavily vet the subjects we invite on the guests have been incredible like i i yeah. have had just such amazing experience with time sensitive whereas at a distance because we're recording you know, two a week, and it's at a, a much faster uh, cadence. I think, um, you know, there's still there's still quite a, um, you know, we're still very uh, diligent about how we're vetting and inviting guests on. But uh, just I think due to the sheer number, we're not, we're obviously we're all human, we're not going to get along with or, or like every single guest. Um, but out of the almost ninety, we've done it at a distance. Maybe one or two. Yeah, I can think of I can think of one specifically that drove me crazy. But um, but yeah, I mean, I think also with time sensitive to connected to your to your question, Stephen. Um, there there are moments where things happen in an interview that you just have to let them be. You have to let them unfold the way they will. Um, a, an example I can think of was um, Daniel Ballou, the chef. I I had on the podcast fairly recently. And I asked him a question about how the coronavirus has changed his relationship with time. And he broke down and, and um, got very teary. And I kind of just let him do that. I didn't want to impede or, or, or put any of my own sort of, um, I don't even know what as an interviewer, it was just like the best thing I could do in that moment is shut up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's like, you know, I, I think, and correct me if either of you disagree, but I think that's in some ways like the, the greatest secret of, of interviewing people is the best interviewers are the interviewers who know when to shut the hell up and just let somebody go. Uh, and to not constantly feel like you have to like, you know, you're not a sheepdog here. Like you don't need to just herd them. Like you can let them go for, go for a walk and trust that they'll come back around. To a point, to, to a point, I think I am, because a pet peeve of mine is when the control's not there, you know, when, because I'm, I'm always just thinking about the other side of this conversation. You know, that's, that's all I'm thinking about. And, and how is it going into their ears and how is it not about me, but how is it about the subject? And how can I shepherd the subject's ideas into the listener's ears in the cleanest, clearest way possible? Like, we are responsible for that. And so, yes, I, I do believe that in a sort of like go with things and everything. But 
But you also have a responsibility and you're holding a certain space for the subject to really um, not be all over the place or you lose a listener. Yeah. So I think there's somewhere in between. Those I, two I do things, think you know? I do think um, owning, loving, accepting awkward silence is also just a really great tool for an interviewer. Like to to know that awkward silence is part is is as, is as important as certain questions you will ask. Awkward anything is good. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, I, I did want to ask. You know, your your mission is to slow in in some ways is and I don't want to you know kind of like dumb your mission down here but like in some ways is to encourage people to slow down right like it's right in the name but at the same time you know you're using a medium you're using podcasting which you know I think the the sort of like Silicon Valley go 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 attitude um, has really kind of found a home in podcasting with these you know three hour meandering shows that you're meant to listen to at 2x speed and like that whole side of podcasting mm-hmm. that I'm not particularly interested in personally. Um, neither, neither are Yeah, we. I would, I would imagine. Um, Loom yeah, casting. Yeah, it's not, not, <laughs> not, not, not my thing, but uh, there's that. And then there's also, you know, Instagram, which is maybe like the greatest, you know, I, I won't say straw man because they are culpable in some way, but they, they kind of get held up as, as the totem of, of, you know, like doom scrolling and just always like need more, more, more. And yet I think you guys utilize those those two platforms in a really interesting way. And I wonder in what way you're you're almost like weaponizing them against themselves. You're you're kind of like subverting it's a, trends in the platform. It's, a, it's such a good it's such a good question. And I, I want Andrew to talk about what we've done with hand marking time because that's really been uh, so, sort of his his, his baby. Um, but but I I totally I'm with you, Stephen, on the in in using the term weaponize, because I think you know this idea of weaponization of speed is something that we are really trying to counter, and we're really really interested in how do you make something that's physical digital, and how do you make something that's digital digital physical? Like that sort of intersection and, and full circle experience is sort of embedded in everything we're doing from our podcast to our weekly newsletter, which explores the five senses, and specifically to this this platform we've built through our Instagram stories called Handmarking Time that um, Andrew's really been steering. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're trying to make thumb stoppers. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> but 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 we're trying to do it in a sort of um, uh, nice way, I guess you could say. Um, uh, early on, you know, we were. I mean, Spencer uh, got into um, Carlo Rovelli's book on time, and and the, the order we were, of time. Everyone should read it. And and. Uh, you know, we were reading a lot about time, thinking a lot about time. We launched with this very poetic video um, uh, when we when we sort of announced to the world, "Hey, we're, we, we've got a thing going on. Take a look." And it was about the the stretchiness of mm. time and uh, how time can be um, viewed in so many different ways. I mean, w- the history of timekeeping um, and how how mo- time is marked has always been fascinating to us. You know, from the Egyptians, uh, you know, with the obelisk dividing the day into two 12-hour periods, the the candle clock in China and Japan. I mean, these were things that I was really thinking about a lot 
um, in terms of how you mark time. And I, I thought, you know, one very simple thing we can do uh, in social is that every single day in our Instagram story, there's a 15-second video of the date being drawn. That's it. Like an Ankawara thing, like any – there are a million different references for just can we take 15 seconds to just consider what the day of the month is. And every month we bring in a different artist who creates the calendar. And we've done this, I don't know, 20 months mm -hmm. of it so far or whatever. And it ranges. Incredible. We had we had Andrew's son uh, do one. <laughs> we had the artist Chantel Martin. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge range. Um, and, and every month there's a new calendar created. And, and I just wanted to use that environment um, to give you an opportunity to just slow down and meditate for 15 seconds on the day of the month marked by a human being mm -hmm. with their hand. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's just been one of the very simple projects that we've that that we've that we've done online mm -hmm. and on social media to use the medium for something different um and i do think it's so, this yeah. sort of encouraging of slowing down without being prescriptive and i think we really want to emphasize that like this is we're, we're not a platform in the vein of say goop where it's like here are 10 steps to do this or that like we, we will never be that we're really interested in putting ideas forward and content forward that does encourage a slowing down without being prescriptive. And, and, and essentially at the end of the day is a screen for you to project your own self onto. Mm -hmm. That's in, in, in both of our work uh, leading up to the slowdown, that's been a very important intent is, is do you leave room for who's looking? And what you're actually doing is creating a space for them to be not for you to take up their which, which their is actually funnily enough the whole focus of my book on memorials <laughs> which is arguing yeah. for abstraction and and that's effectively what those environments do is is encourage people to slow down to turn inward and to reflect and in so i guess in some ways the slowdown is a kind of like memorial of sorts i mean we're we're certainly looking at at a distance as a memorial of the of some of the greatest thoughts um, that have percolated and bubbled to the surface during the pandemic well that's really it i mean i, I remember thinking early on like you know how are people even going to know about this or are we going to get enough listeners and and in truth I, I didn't really care what it really was about for me was can we capture the best thinking during this incredibly you know profound moment of shift and you know, the, the thoughts that happen during this moment are clearly different than the thoughts that were happening before and will happen after. So how do we capture that and and capture it well enough to be able to look back on it a year from now or 100 years from now? And now we're in the process of figuring out what is at a distance look like as we near the end of the year. Um, December 22nd will be episode 100. So we will have recorded 100 episodes this year. That's wild. And that may be our last episode we're, we're figuring out what that will look like. Um, and, and we're planning a, a, a publishing project connected to the podcast. Very cool. Well, I, I don't want to do too hard of a pivot here as we've spent quite, quite a bit of time talking about, you know, ways to make <laughs> this is, hard, this is hard. the part where we talk about watches. Yeah, right? no, this is Steven. This, hard is, pivot. this is the part where we're, we're not going to talk specifically about watches but i i do want to make sure i like we... watches we can talk watches no no i know i know you're both you're both into <laughs> watches but i want to talk about stuff 
more generally. And and I think, you know, my my creative journalist segue here will be the like, you know, you talked a little bit a, a little while ago, Spencer, about, you know, making digital physical and making physical digital. And I think the relationships between ideas and things is something that I know both of you are, are deeply, deeply invested in and have been, you know, long before uh, the slowdown. And it's it's ultimately, I think, like maybe the most important question hanging over what what I spend all day doing with with watches. Um, and, and I'm curious how maybe the last couple of months have, have changed or reinforced the way you guys think about how we should relate to to the objects in our lives, to the, the physical world around us. I've been thinking about this um, a little bit and um, was actually just on the Domino Magazine podcast sort of talking about this. I, you know, I think that, um, you know, the objects we bring into our lives and into our homes, and this may sound really obvious to Hodinkee listeners who, who care intimately about watches, um, is that uh, they're a reflection of your values. And I think in this time of the pandemic, what it's showing is how interconnected we all are and how we got here is is in large part a result of just unfettered consumption, just just like endless buying endless shitty shit. And, and I think that, you know, this notion of fewer better things, um, to to use a, a phrase from Glenn Adamson, uh, is is really important. Um, thinking about like rather than buying those ten things that you want to fill your room with, like why not save up for one really great thing that is going to bring you like endless joy? Um, that to me is probably like one of the more important lessons that I hope more people are coming out of the pandemic with is they stay at home and look around their apartments and homes and realize that they don't like half the stuff that's around them and that they probably, yeah. probably should have, you know, thought about it differently. I, I see it slightly differently than Spencer only, I mean, and that might be a product of my age, but you know, I, um, I don't think of things as forever. Um, I, 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 I have collected many things very deeply um, in art, design, antiquity, um, in all sorts of ways. And what they represent is a sort of roadmap of my curiosities. So the objects in my life um, and the, that, that my family lives with are, um, are markers of time in many ways. And uh, it's interesting, I'll go through periods where I just really don't want those things around. Um, either I... I don't agree with how I was thinking at the time or I'm not interested in what I was interested at that time and, and I just want them out. Even if they're the best examples of that period, they can sometimes hold me back. So for many years, I was I was super interested in collecting and uh, sort of having things. And uh, But once I had them, they sort of had diminished satisfying returns. And what I started to realize, and, you know, might be just sort of having three kids and growing up and, and all these things, I I, uh, I actually started to not want many things around. And even if they were the best example and there were the fewest of them, or, and, and really just wanting to um, constantly leave room for new thinking. Um, so I, I started to respond, have this sort of negative response, I think after 40, where I, 
I just didn't want things that represented um, my previous curiosities because they in a way held me back from the new ones. So I've managed to hold on to certain things, but but uh, I don't like putting too much power in the objects, um, even if they're the greatest examples, you know? Yeah, I think connected to that, I you know, I would elaborate that like a personal connection to an object is such an interesting thing because you're constantly in dialogue with it. And sometimes, as with certain relationships, you may decide you don't want that in your life any longer. And, and, exactly. and you need to let it go. Um, whereas other, other relationships grow stronger and stronger. And you, mm -hmm. you have them with you throughout your life. You, you, you know, in the case and the older you get, you pare it down. <laughs> That's why maybe there's so few things now where, where, where you really edit hardcore. Mm -hmm. um, you just don't want a lot of mm -hmm. stuff around. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that... Uh, I know that for me looking around my apartment, cause you know, we're sometimes it does feel, especially for those of us who have been in the city during this whole pandemic, it's like, you almost feel like you're uh, in a hermetically sealed box or something. And you're like, you know, you're, you're looking around your home and you're like, Oh, I don't know if I really want that anymore. Like you're, you're, you're staring at every object and putting a lot more weight on the things around you than you would have before the pandemic. Or things that you got interested in early and which were co-opted by sort of uh, populist, capitalist movements, uh, your perspective on them changed. I mean, it was like the DWR effect with furniture collecting. You know, it's like all of a sudden that chair is not so special because now it shows up in every Airbnb. And so th it's interesting how your relationship to object change as culture's relationship yeah. changes. It's, it, it's, it's funny you say that, Andrew, because I've been really sick of my Eames chairs. I'm kind of like, <laughs> I don't really yeah. want these. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> my, my wife and I are in the process of packing our apartment up. Uh, we're moving out of our current place in 10 days. But um, that process has been really fascinating. We've been in this place for six years, and it's a pretty small you know, New York apartment. And there's something really liberating about letting things go. And I've, I've talked to some other Hodinky radio guests about this idea, but like there's almost an, I don't know what the word is for it, but it's, it's whatever the inverse of collecting is like uncollecting, um, that can actually be, I like uncollecting. That's a good, yeah, that's like a good it's, idea. It's, yeah. it's that pleasure that you get. It's, it's the opposite pleasure of the hunt, right? Like, there's that that immense pleasure you get of getting really nerdy about something, tracking down, like you said, Andrew, like the finest example of the rarest thing and making it yours. But then there's there's also a pleasure in acknowledging that like this thing doesn't own you and you can let it go and that's okay. And that it doesn't have that sort of power over you anymore. Um, mm -hmm. It reminds me my one... Steven, you're, you're sounding like Marie Kondo. <laughs> Hopefully not too, too much, but uh, no shade yeah. to Marie Kondo. But um, Hold on to more than 10 books or whatever her, her yeah, rule books, was about books. <laughs> books books are like the one exception. Like books, I, I yeah. it was one of the yeah. first things we boxed up because it was the easiest. Uh, and I've been living in an mm. apartment with like 20 books in it for the last two weeks. And it's been, it's been really weird. I, I actually didn't realize how much... I would like how oppressive I would find it to not have books around, but uh, mm. it, yeah, it, it reminds me of this. Uh, one of my favorite things from all of literature is actually the epigram to uh, Fitzgerald's "The Beautiful and Damned," which is "To the spoils go the victor." Um, and I, I, 
being somebody who deals with things all day for a living, I think about that all the time. And I, I, I think, you know, what you've, you've said, Andrew, in particular about like the emotional and intellectual relationship can change. And at a certain point, it's a good thing to be able to let that go and, and acknowledge that, you know, the physical object might be the same, but the reasons you wanted it and enjoyed it are not the same. And that's okay. And it's not sort of a yeah, failing. you've you've changed. Yeah, and that's yeah, you've you've changed, and, and it's like you get rid of the books from last year's school. You know, it's like you don't need last year's textbook. And I just dumped a whole bunch of stuff at an auction the other day for my space collection, and it's absurd how like geeky I got about collecting space <laughs> artifacts, and I can't tell you how good it felt to get rid of it all. Um, and now they're in homes where people probably really love them or collections that are important, but I don't have to deal with it anymore. And I also don't have a responsibility to take care of it anymore, which is the best part. You know, you sort of, when you collect things that are rare, you have a responsibility to them. They're not yours. They're just with you for that moment. And so getting rid of them is also liberating. It's like, uh, it's getting rid of a responsibility, really. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And both on the the responsibility to the object and also the idea of things going to a place where they're loved. I mean, I know, I know plenty of watch collectors who, who own, you know, not plenty. I own no handful of watch collectors who own like a hundred plus watches. And that is not a type of collecting I could ever participate in, in anything. Uh, it's like not using the thing and engaging with it and having like an active relationship with it stresses me out like it feels like I'm somehow letting this thing down that it it needs someone to love it and appreciate it and enjoy it and if I'm not giving that to the the watch the chair the photograph the whatever um that like I almost it's almost my responsibility to allow it to go to a place where it will be loved and appreciated and I think that um connected to what you're saying there's there's this idea of where you put it you know yeah like if, if you stuff it in a drawer, like, yeah, you're going to probably ignore it and forget about it or, or shove it in a closet. But like, you know, like I think about this blue painting I have in my living room. Like I enjoy that every day. I look at it. I stare at it. It calms me down. It's ever since I got it, it's completely transformed my home. And, you know, if I didn't have that blue painting, maybe there'd be something else there. Um, but like that attachment has grown stronger with time, not only because I happen to really like the painting, but because of where it's hanging, because of where it is. I see it. There, you know, there's this refrain in my in in my house, and my wife and I were we'll we'll just say, well, you know, <clears throat> I haven't heard from that in a while, mm-hmm. <laughs> where it stopped it stopped having something to say, and you know, especially specifically more with art when. When it no longer has something to say to me, um, art or objects, it just sort of, it, it's time to go because it might have something to say to someone else. Um, but watches are different. You know, watches can be quite personal. And I agree, you don't need lots of them. Um, but there is, there, there's something about it. It's like the last, the last thing that you can carry around, you know? Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I know that, you know, I know that Spencer, uh, the watch that Spencer wears most days is, is, has a great story to it and represents a trip and a journey. I, and, I, I, and it's funny cause it's like a memorial on my wrist, right? Like it's, you know, it's based on a trip I took to Morioka and Nagano to see the Grand Seiko factories and, you know, the Epson Seiko factory. Um, 
and that whole journey to Japan and I was I was actually the first non-endemic watch journalist to <laughs> visit those factories and being there with a bunch of like you know watch nerds was kind of amazing because they were asking questions that I just didn't know about and I was at I was asking questions that they'd never heard asked before um, because I was concerned with the the materiality and and craft uh, and the and a lot of the design elements in a way that um, were maybe more macro thinking than the micro thinking that often is is typical of a watch journalist. Sure. And and Andrew, you're uh, I know I've spotted you wearing a vintage Daytona a couple times. Are you mostly a, a vintage watch guy when it comes comes to that thing? Yeah, I mean, I'm not really a watch guy. I have a couple watches. Um, I have some friends that have like hardcore collections that kind of taught me about stuff. You know, one friend in particular who is really into Paul Newman's and he started buying them, you know, 15 years ago. Um, uh, and 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 I always liked that watch. I never even knew it was valuable. But um, every time we were hanging out, I'd ask to 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 uh, to try it on and look at it. And there was something about the size of it, the 38 millimeter, yeah. I loved. And at one point, I, I, I found a, a 1975 6263 Big Red, um, and I, I bought it. Uh, it was a long time ago, um, so it was you know somewhat uh, manageable. And that's the watch I wear every day. And then I have this super obnoxious gold Submariner. <laughs> it's like it's from 1980. Yeah. I mean, it looks like somebody's first um, like yeah. bonus. <laughs> You know, it's like super gross, and and it uh, it's eighteen karat gold, and it has a nipple dial, and you know this dude spent must have spent a lot of time playing golf because the the patina on the bezel, it's like it's blue. It's gone. I don't know what it's called, but when it goes from black yeah. to kind of blue, um, and it's uh, I don't know. It, it it kind of represents everything I hate, and there's some sort of irony in that, and I like wearing it sometimes. It really isn't my personality, but. It's beautiful. It also comes from this kind of like I like the idea of like a chunk of gold you could grab during the apocalypse and like get over the GW bridge I'm with it. Right there with you. Know, you. It's that kind yeah. of object. <laughs> um, and then I have a uh, I have an Icapod Hemiopod from from when he you know the first run of it way back. It's a beautiful weird watch and and uh, a couple other little things. But but yeah, I wear this big red every day. Um, and uh, hoping no one really knows what it is yeah. when I'm wearing it. I mean, that's one of the nice things about watches is, is I mean, you already mentioned that they, they can be in, intensely personal, but they also, I think more than some other categories of, of, you know, whether it's clothing or even like sneakers or things like that, they're still niche enough that most of the time you can go out into the world with like a really great thing that you've built a personal relationship with and not worry that other people are going to be staring at it or make a fuss over it. I mean, a, a gold Samariner is a slightly, slightly different thing, but um, it's very, in general, it's, it's, there's... It's totally chain out. It's like when that gold watch, for some reason, you can see people's eyes change when they see it. Like, I didn't think yeah. you were that guy. And that's what I like about it, <laughs> the sort of disarming quality of it. It's like a Halloween yeah. costume. I mean, what I love about the the Grand Seiko I've got is that it just gets me thinking about the steadfast, like fastidiousness that went into making it, and the fact that I got to see that in action. You know, like every time I have it on, I'm kind of like, it makes me want to bring that kind of level of of like 
meticulousness to the work. That yeah, I well, that's do. like Langa. It's sort of a rep- representation. Yeah, yeah, Langa is another example of that, and they've been an amazing partner of Time Sensitive for us. Um, we've gotten to like n- nerd out and le- learn about Langa's brand just by reason of them supporting I mean, that's us, a whole other level, amazing. though. That's not a Rolex. You know, that's like a... That's a hardcore yeah, object. A different... um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Longa is definitely my dream yeah. watch. If I had to, if I had to like think of a watch that I one day really hope to own, it would be a Longa. I'm right there with you, <laughs> and uh, I I think what you said, Spencer, about you know, kind of the watch making you want to be better, is is to me one of like the ideal ways we can relate to objects, whether it's it's a watch or something else is like having that thing push you to be better and like on, on a human level and not push you to accumulate more stuff or to make more money or to do whatever, but to just like be better and to improve yourself. And if an, an object can kind of serve as a totem for something like that, I, I think that's, that's a really powerful thing in, in a lot of ways. Mm. Yeah, and we're all trying to, I think, find a way to be as present as we can in a world in which we're in a global pandemic about to face a a U.S. presidential election and dealing with, you know, climate, the climate crisis. Like, how do you how do you find a sense of um, center in the midst of all of that? And I don't know, somehow I think watches or marking time can can be a tool for helping do that. Yeah, I, I totally, totally agree with you. Um, cool. Well, we're getting kind of short on time. We ran a little longer than, than I was expecting, but, uh, I think, I think it's great. And I just want to, at the end, it's I mean, two people. So that's why you have to deal with both of us. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it's, true. And, it, and it's, and it's been a while. <laughs> it has been a while. Been and a while. I think honestly, also the, the three of us have pretty similar interests in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, I, I didn't even get to probably half the things I wanted to talk about, including, um, the amazing newsletter you guys do, which we'll we'll link up so that people can check that out. But I, w- I want to give you both an opportunity. We're, we're actually gonna we're gonna launch a, a website next year um, that will bring everything under one umbrella at slowdown.tv. Perfect. So that's a, a you yeah. you pre uh, you you preempted my my question, which was going to be what's what's coming down the pipe for you guys. What what do people have to look forward to? And uh, I guess that that must be the the big thing then. Yeah, um, I mean, we're developing uh, other platforms and projects. We've got we've had some stuff on the back burner um, that you know, by reason of making at a distance, we had to put some things aside. Um, we also do client work, uh, and so that keeps the lights on and things moving forward for us, and also keeps us uh, very busy. I mean, that's that's really a bulk of our focus is um, some of these client projects. There's definitely been a lot of that. Um, I mean, I, the, to, to, to describe that part of it, because I think we meet a lot of people that go, so you're doing this thing. It's very independent. You're not heavy on advertising. How do you do it? Um, and, and our answer is generally that we, we have a very, very, very unique and very boutique approach to helping very few brands. We basically work as Black Ops, the CEO, um, largely for early stage companies um, that are missioned aligned with what we're doing. So we're not an agency at all, but we do um, high level advising and some execution uh, to move things forward, um, which for us is, is, is 
not just a way to keep the lights on, but but really because we see that being in a, in a storytelling platform where where your role is to communicate ideas, to shepherd ideas from other people, that's what good brands do. So few do that. Just see that their their comms efforts are really just about information and education, not about marketing. So we don't really do marketing. We we do a lot of help with communication and um, helping. Uh, reduce story down so that people can understand what they're doing. Um, so we, we keep ourselves quite busy with a couple of companies uh, that we work closely with so that we can actually affect some change, not just talk about the changes that are happening. Yeah, and we're only working with clients who we feel really reflect our own sort of vision and values. And the work we're doing on the media side is actually feeding the client side in an interesting way where we're getting sort of first order research through the conversations and a lot of the interviews we're having and the exploration of the subjects in the newsletter. All of that is kind of captured in what we're doing um, uh, on the client side as well. And so there's this sort of interesting dialogue between culture, nature, and the future on the media side and on the client side. Yeah, combining those two things, it's interesting to to hear you say you're getting learnings kind of in, in both directions. I think that's the relationship between kind of like, quote unquote, like journalism or media and then doing brand work, um, I think is kind of like, uh, not shady, but I think it's it's just clouded for most people. I think they just don't have any sense of what that, that can look like. And it's it's interesting to hear that you guys think of it as kind of really core to what you do and not just something that gets sort of like tacked on. Yeah, we always knew that. I mean, we didn't want to start. At, we're actually not big fans of media companies who have a, a consulting arm. What we we built it together at the same time, and um, we're very very clear about who we were working with and why, and um, uh, take quite a while to take on clients. I mean, what we're involved in is driving new technologies that will shift the world in a positive way. Um, and so the, the specifically through technology, for the most part, with the clients we have, it's the background that Spencer and I can bring to bear there. But, um, you know, we we won't just take any work and we're not involved in kind of any efforts that are not uh, what we think are morally aligned with 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 our own intent. So there's not it's not nefarious. It's just what we do, you know, Um and 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 they they are codependent. They are working in concert. That's great to hear, and I'm I'm excited to hear that we have more to look forward to coming. You know, with at a distance hitting episode 100 at the end of this year, and the new website coming early next year. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll make sure to link everything up in the in the show notes so that people can check it out and you know leave us comments on the site if they've got questions for either of you guys because I think there's. We, we've almost like we've talked for an hour and we've almost asked more questions than we've answered, which in some ways I think is, is the sign of a good conversation. But uh, yeah, I think we could we could probably sit here for a couple more hours and not uh, not run out of stuff to talk about. People might get bored, but yeah, I think would, the three would, of us make, wouldn't. <laughs> we'd, we'd have a great time and poor Gray would have to, uh, you know, cut 75 percent of the interview and make his job a little harder. But uh, yeah, <laughs> he can he can handle it. Right. Um, 
so yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's honestly just good to catch up with you guys and, and have a nice conversation. And, uh, I'm, I'm personally really excited to see what, uh, what keeps coming. You guys are one of my, uh, you know, favorite that both of the shows are two of my favorite shows out there. And, uh, I'm excited to, to keep listening. Thank you so much for having us, Steven. This was really nice. Yeah. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. Awesome. Thanks guys. Have a good one. 